This is Spotlight on Fintech, a place to discuss all things related to finance, technology, and innovation. Hello and welcome to Spotlight on Fintech, brought to you by SpotCap, a multinational fintech lender and provider of lending technologies. I'm your host, Keely Reynolds, and today I'm joined by four influential founders of fintech businesses who all happen to be women. In light of International Women's Day today, we're talking gender diversity and the small changes we can make every day to bridge the gender gap within the fintech industry. So without further ado, let me introduce our four panelists. Devi Mohan, co-founder and CEO of Burnmark, a fintech research company. Viola Lulewin, co-founder and president of the African fintech Bavamba, which connects African SMEs to sources of short-term growth capital. Miriam Wolfarth, MD and co-founder of online payments company RatePay, and finally, behavioral mathematician and founder of Empathic Businesses, Barbara Lample. So a very warm welcome to Devi, Miriam, Viola, and Barbara. Let's kick off. I'd like to firstly point out that, you know, we're joined today by by women with some quite diverse cultural backgrounds. So I wanted to first get a little bit of a sense of your experiences studying or engaging with technology and finance as, as younger women. Debbie, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about um, the, your studying in India? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in India um, and I spent a lot of time, uh, obviously, there before moving to the UK. And one of the big benefits looking back, um, I find, um, is that India is huge on STEM and technology education. So almost every kid in school um, is looking at a career either in medicine or in engineering. It sounds like a cliche, but it's actually the reality there. And uh, you're kind of Mm -hmm. nudged into that technology or science path pretty early on. And looking back and having seen how education works in the UK and uh, watching my son go through the whole UK schooling system, I I find that absolutely brilliant. And uh, you find that there are equal numbers of uh, men and women going into engineering or technology careers. But one of the big things that is missing, and that's common across India as well as the UK, and I'm sure other parts of the world, is that once they go into that system and uh, they study technology, they've started their careers there, they find it hard to move ahead. There's something there which stops them, stops the women. And and that is common in in, uh, India and the UK and other parts of the world. But the start, though, is absolutely important and um, and India is really great at building that strength um, and creating equality before girls realize that um, coding is for geeks or maths is for uh, for really serious geeky uh, girls. And they kind of don't have that conception uh, when they grow up. And I think that's brilliant and it's essential to have. If you would go with the uh, totally opposite, I am. If that's kind of similarity you want to use, then it's. Um, I would say my experience in Germany was totally different, and even studying math in Germany and in Switzerland was still totally different. But in school, I was told um, I'm not fit for a higher education um, based on because women in math don't mix. So, and that was that was really told in the face mm-hmm. of my mother that I would not be fit on that front and especially not because like, no, women can have math skills. And that's already, um, and that's uh, was something I heard all over, even while studying math 
um, from the professional side, uh, prof the professors were a little bit more indirect, but our tutors we had, um, they were more direct and more blunt about that. It's not kind of a good idea to study math. Mm. And what was your personal reaction to being told that at the time? Um, being young and being autistic, it was like, I don't care. <laughs> um, it hit me hard at the university because till then I had, a, I had my parents who like made that bubble out of around me who told me, no, it's totally fine. Do whatever you want. There were never a sense or never a sentence about you cannot do anything. So, but going to university and going away from home, um, it was kind of hard. It's what it was really hard on me. The truth be told, I've, ever since I was a very small child, I have been honed and pushed into the scientific disciplines by my father. I was reading when I was three because he figured out that the quicker I could get information, the better. And he was very wise about that. I was also um, subject to a rather interesting experiment that he was dealing with. My father was a psychiatrist. In fact, the first psychiatrist in Cameroon history, if I'm not mistaken. And he would use, he would encourage me to use all of my senses to learn. What this does for a child who is interested in sciences, it allows you to experience as well as remember and connect information together. So I was never really into dolls, but I did like dressmaking because my dad and my mom made it appear that dressmaking was engineering. There are measurements, there are angles, there's structure, things have to work. So everything I did was through this lens of science and play. I loved cooking, and to me it was chemistry, and I still love to cook. And there is still the mathematical aspect of ratios that are involved in this. When you bring up a young girl in this respect and allow her to ride bikes, kick footballs, hang out with cars with your dad, as well as your mother has got you involved in some of the other more traditional activities, you have a person who is far more absorbent to the scientific disciplines around them. See, I didn't study math or so I didn't study any mint uh, subjects. So I don't really have any, uh, let's say, experiences around that. I studied economies, but um, I, I still, I, I, I work together with some young girls and one of them, she's studying math as well. And she's also still like this, that she's telling me that like in a class out of 20, there are maybe like two or three girls. So it's still a problem. Yeah. It, it starts really early. Thank you, Miriam. I know um, that each of you operate in very uh, typically male-dominated industries. So what kind of gender bias have you each encountered and how did you manage to, to move past it? Debbie, why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had the good fortune <laughs> to have experienced a, both a lot of ethnic bias as well as gender bias and cultural bias, etc., uh, being in a completely different country from where I grew up. Um, but one of the interesting things that happen always is that people tend to underestimate you. Um, I'll give you an example or a little story about what happened recently. I, I was on a call with um, one of the largest um, technology firms in the world. And they were having this whole conversation about building a new technology product. And I, I was, of course, a marketing and strategy advisor. And they assumed I knew nothing about technology. So they went on and on talking about what they were trying to build and how difficult the whole process is going to be, how long it's going to take, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew exactly with my computer engineering background how much time they were going to really need and how much budget they actually need to make that happen. 
So at the end of the call, I listened to all of that and said, oh, by the way, I know exactly what APS you need to build this. And this hmm. is exactly how you go about doing that. And I think we had a few seconds of silence because they did not see that coming uh, from someone with a marketing <laughs> background. <laughs> and um, I, I think to me, that's fantastic because you kind of add a lot of value when people don't es- estimate too much from you. And that is um, that gives you the power <laughs> to to take control at a later stage. And I, I kind of like that being in the background and then telling people when when it's clearly wrong or uh, or difficult. And um, and that's one of the few examples of um, of how this has happened. But it happens all the time in different ways. Bias is a naturally human phenomenon, and these kind of things happen all the time. Yeah, of course, Debbie, I guess it's it's kind of hard to avoid. Uh, Viola, what, what about you? Any experiences you'd like to share on your side? I have a niece and nephew who are twins. They are going to be 11 this year. But two years ago, we were in the kitchen cooking, and I always make sure that my nephew is involved in cooking and cleaning, washing clothes, and he's there. And I try to encourage my niece to take risks and to be physical and to not worry about getting hurt and not too caught up on doing hair and makeup, much as I also encourage that because she's allowed to express the full spectrum of her humanity. So the two children were having a conversation and he said to her that you have to do what I say. And she said, I don't want to. He said, you have to, I'm the man. So I looked at him and I asked him, I said, where did you hear that from? He said, I don't know. And I asked her, do you believe him? And she said, yes. This really bothered me. So I asked him, why does she have to listen to you? Because the men are in charge and the women aren't. Okay. What is it that the women are supposed to do? They're supposed to do what men say and they have to cook and they have to clean and they have to take care of children. Okay. And what do you think men are supposed to do? They tell people what to do and they are in charge. And I asked him, have you ever fallen down? Yes. Has your daddy ever put a bandage on your knee? Yes. So why is he taking care of you if you're a child and he's a man? And he looked at me and then I asked him, I'm auntie Viola. What do I do? He said, you're in, you have Ovamba. I said, am I in charge of anybody? He said, yes. Am I a man? And he looks even more confused. So I asked him, what is a man? And then he looked at me and said, Auntie Achi, I don't know. I asked my niece, what is a man? And she scratched her head and I explained to them, a man is a human being who can make a woman pregnant. A woman is a human being who can carry live human beings to give birth to them. Beyond that, not a lot is that different. And from that point on, I began to really observe, especially in our culture, the behavior of the people around in the family and how they impact a girl's ability to be strong, brave, and self-determined. I counted in the space of two hours, whenever my mother needed something, she sent my niece eight times more than my, my nephew. Out of 10 times, she, my niece was sent to run errands seven to eight times. He was sent two, three times. <laughs> to be honest, I don't have so many stories about this. Um, hmm. 
well, I grew up in a family where my father, I mean, no, he was he was really much into computers and everything. He never made a difference about my brother or me. So I grew up with technology and then uh, I always played with boys. I had always male friends. So when I started in the, in the online payments industry, so 18 years ago, that was at the beginning of this industry when it all started. And we were all the same age at that time. We were all in the end 20s. And I think it was a really, let's say, we had a really great atmosphere to work at. It was not really full of testosterone. It was just to experience something new. <laughs> and for me, it was rather uh, an advantage, to be honest, because when I went to the conference, everybody knew me. <laughs> so <laughs> I took the advantage out of this, let's say, like this. Um, and I know that not everybody had made these kind of experiences, but to be honest, I, I never felt uh, bad about being a woman in this industry. I had really, really good um, experiences there. That's fantastic. Actually, I think um, it's quite a nice way to frame things around the times when it's actually worked to your advantage to be to be a woman. And I think, Devi, your story also talks to that, you know, that often people are underestimating you because of because perhaps you're a woman or perhaps a number of other things. But actually, that kind of works to your advantage when you can prove them wrong. Miriam, I actually watched a, a YouTube clip of you that I came across um, last week where you kind of mentioned that you didn't have a female startup role model. Would you say that that was still true? And if so, what impact do you think that that has had on you and, and your career? As, yeah, it's still true. I don't have any female. <laughs> so there's no role model for me at the moment that I can look up to and say this is uh, something I want to I, I, I want to be like there or so. Yeah, I think to be honest, I, I never in the past I never thought so much about role models. I think my role model was my ex boss. It was a man, but it was not because he's a man. It's, he was my role model because of his job and what he did. Or maybe my first role model was my mother because she was a full-time working mother. It was different than maybe some other mothers. So this is also something where it starts. Uh, so I had a role model, but not in the startup industry. Just my mother being a mother that is working. I think it could help for younger women. If you see more women working in startups, building startups, creating startups, it's often, I mean, when you think, when you're young and you really think about what you what you want to be or what your what your favorite job looks like, you look at something, at some people that you like, especially as you look at the people. And if you see good people that that have good jobs and maybe that have a startup, it's, there's more a higher interest of being like them. Mm. And what about you, Viola? How important is it to have a role model? It's very important because I didn't have any. I had white women who have the advantage of being able to succeed. It's very different and very difficult. If you're a young black female in the 80s in the UK and you're talking about large multi-million dollar machines and your ambition to rise up through the ranks and your ambitions around experimentation with uh, different concepts, people don't take you very seriously. They don't think that that's where you belong. In fact, I even had a careers teacher at school tell me that I really needed to stop being unrealistic and find a job in retail. But I'm not calibrated to be obedient to things that don't suit me. And I didn't pay any attention to that. Whereas I've seen many young women, gifted engineers or whatever, miss out on that. Today, it's different. If I had female role models who I could see the path that they took, it might have been different. Mm, that's a really interesting point, actually. So on that topic, what kind of things do you think that we can do to encourage and create kind of a safe space for young women um, to study those kind of STEM subjects that we're all talking about today? 
I think, first of all, we have to be ourselves role models, um, just to stand out, be visible, be there and be approachable. So that's, I think, then was the two most effective things. Be a role model yourself and be approachable. Mm. I think approachable is a good word, yeah, because it's, uh, it's, I mean, that it's easy to talk to you and also you go, I mean, I also started doing a lot of speaking on conferences and I'm always happy, you know, when sometimes people come up and say, oh, this was so good to listen to you and uh, you gave me some spirit to do something. This is really great. <laughs> I really had this a few times. And also here at RatePay, um, we, well, we are also fintech, but we have almost 50% of women. And this is, this is really good. And it's also the women here. It's in product development. It's in IT. It's not only in HR or in, in marketing where we have the women. We have them all over. And uh, I'm really proud of this. And also, lately, we had an evening here because I made, and we made like women at Ratepay evening events. There were some new women. And they said to me, you know, uh, they were really coming to Ratepay because of this. They read about this and they saw that there is a, a female founder and that there are a lot of women. And they, they really approached Ratepay because of this. This makes me really proud. And I said, okay, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. And so there is this role model thing. When they see you, that there are different kinds of models, also in industries where you usually have not so many women. Yeah. And I also connect a lot uh, over Twitter. So for me, it's also a way to share information, but also a lot to learn. And it's always whenever a certain topic that I, for example, write about, I look for people that really write about this or talk about this. And I follow them and sometimes I, I, I got to know some people also via Twitter. It's also for me, it, it worked really well with Twitter. I think social media has made possible uh, identifying the people who think exactly like you. In the fintech world, there are so many lists and uh, groups that have been created with uh, the people that you want to follow. It's so easy to pick a group and follow every conversation happening within that group. And there's so much conversation happening in terms of the industry, in terms of data sharing, in terms of uh, network creation, in terms of uh, mentoring. There's so much happening just on Twitter. It's been fascinating. And I'm fairly new to Twitter as well. I just started tweeting maybe three years ago, and it's just taken off for me. And I do spend a lot of time and energy into identifying the right people, Uh, to follow the right people to have conversations with and uh, try and identify the, the people who I can learn from. But once you put in that effort, I think the advantages are enormous. You get in, once you get in the sphere of influence within Twitter or Instagram, you can learn so much. So it's both ways for me. It's a way for me to share information for the next generation of girls And it's a way for me to learn from others in the industry. And the number of women-only groups on Twitter are really, really powerful as well. And strangely, it's not just business or people. I follow groups like Girls Who Travel on Facebook, started by Sheryl Sandberg. And again, there's so many inspiring women you meet on these groups with shared interests that you can learn a lot from, from this. And it's helped me immensely in my career as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I started out of desperate need because I'm, as um, Cheryl Zandberg Lean In book came out and I thought, okay, great, I want to join a circle. And there was no circle in Germany, so I started the whole Lean In Germany stuff. And, <laughs> of course, it's one big thing. It's like um, 
with a busy schedule and as um, DBZ, it's great. Social media is much a great tool, not only um, social media, but also big on meeting in person. <laughs> and Barbara, while we're on the topic of face-to-face encounters, you had a great networking tip that you wanted to share. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my networking tip. Um, networking for me is quite complicated, even if it now doesn't sound like that, because I'm um, on the autistic spectrum. So I'm getting always a little bit nervous with new crowds, big crowds. It's fine with me on a stage. I'm really loving that. But being into a new crowd is always a little bit difficult. And so I'm always the one who comes early, scans the room and stuff like that. And over the years, I developed the technique to normally every networking table, um, there's some tables or some thing where you can stand and also hold on, but also grab some bottles, whatever you have, or doesn't matter, or wine, water, or beer, and just stand them there. So be at a table, grab some drinks, and people will come to you, and they will start to talk to you. So you don't have to initiate the conversation. You don't have to be very extrovert and say, very kind of you because they want to have to drink something. <laughs> we love it. That's a great tip. Miriam, what about you? Do you have any networking tips that have worked in your favor? I usually have business lunches almost every day. So I try to, when I meet people <laughs> somewhere at some conferences or so, I, I try to, let's say, stay in touch and then have lunches. And so I got a great network through this. And also when I'm at conferences, I do it the same thing. I stand myself on a table and usually some people come and then I ask them what they are doing. So this is how I meet people. So I, I actually have a question for each of you. How often are you approached by other women who are kind of seeking out your advice? And how much time are you able to make for those women who do approach you in, in your week or in a typical day? So I would say I'm approached, but not as much as I would like to, to be honest. <laughs> Sounds strange, but I would love to be approached even more. So um, I would say um, I'm approached also, like Miriam said, at conferences mainly. and um, But also, like, it's getting better if you like trying so social media stuff. So over Instagram, Twitter and stuff like that, it's getting better. But it's still, especially for you, German. Okay, but there, in German, you have always a problem that they don't ask questions. So that's um, even more complicated to get them to move. Um but it's still too less. And, um, but I'm thinking around that all that mentoring stuff. Um, if, if I have a good week and I'm quite active in all that lean in stuff, um, then I would do, I would say around three to four hours a week are going into that. And I'm really, it's, it's great just to answering for master students some questions, being part of a bachelor thesis and stuff like that. That's really great. It's a really strong message to all those aspiring women out there that, you know, you can reach out to people who you see in the industry you know, doing interviews or, or speaking at conferences and that for the most part, everybody is very willing to help um, other younger women, you know, to, to kind of blaze their own trail, so to speak. So around this topic of, of mentorship, um, last week we kind of discussed an interesting statistic that, um, that Cheryl Sandberg's company and her mentorship program has just come out with that almost... 30% of male managers are now saying that they're not comfortable walk, working alone with a woman, you know, in this kind of post-Me Too environment. So that, that's apparently more than um, twice as many as before by the, same, by the same study. What impact do you think that this could have on women if they're kind of shut out of the, the male mentorship arena? Um, 
starting off, my all mentors I had were male. <laughs> and that's like the baseline of it. All mentors I had um, were male. Um, when I started paying for mentors, I got um, like hiring consultants. I'm always looking like out for um, getting more females on board, but it's still hard work. And I'm thinking the statistic that 30% of male managers are now not comfortable. I I think it's not a little bit of a lie because they were not really into it before. Now they're blaming it. That's, that's my honest personal opinion. Now they're blaming it. It's like on a Me Too discussion before they just weren't that interested in anything of it to do it. And Barbara, what do you think is the real reason why um, men feel uncomfortable mentoring women? I think one thing is um, that they probably that one that was some some things um, my mentors really said they were not sure if they can answer it from a right perspective but come on then you can talk to somebody or get a little bit of training to see a different perspective in and it's also I think it's one big thick thing is it's a bias so it's one of the big cognitive biases that it's that you find it more difficult mm. to mentor if if you're not the same. It's it's we know that from many many studies that's one of the biggest problems is in mentorship um, that that the biggest benefit is if you're not the same, but also it's the biggest problem you had have to get out of the way and it's I think it's much more an unconscious bias thing. Yeah, and to that that's sometimes to be honest that makes me a little bit about this whole Me Too debate. Uh, I'm a little bit, uh, I think, controversial about this. On the one hand, I think it's, it needs to be like this. On the other hand, I think it's, it should not be not happen that men are getting afraid of women. But I think it's, it would not be good. Yeah, but really, it would not help us at all because, uh, I mean, what would help us in the in the future is diversity and not, uh, let's say, a leadership of women or a leadership of men. So I think it's more the equal thing. And what is happening now, I think. It, I'm not so comfortable with all these debates because today I read on Twitter something. There was an article here where, where there was really a man talking, am I allowed to say a woman she's pretty? Is this something, I'm, you know, this is something, it's getting a problem if somebody is saying that. And is this really the thing that we wanted to go? Yeah, I think it's a serious problem now because last week the New Zealand Prime Minister gave an interview and the interviewer called her one of the most beautiful women uh, he had met. And that, to me, is a huge compliment. And that, to me, is something yeah. uh, beyond, of, yeah. of course, her obvious <laughs> capabilities, but something that's perfectly innocent and all right to say. You know, I completely agree with Miriam that it should not yeah. be that people are afraid to talk to you or say certain things. I think one thing of the Me Too debate is good that there is a discussion, but like always, if there's a discussion and it also has an underlying problem, there it's getting out of hand. And I think with the problem with the, of course, everybody of us likes us to be called pretty if it's in the right context and from coming from the kind right of person. Um, but what I've seen over the years and um, especially like changing sides so much, like being on the seaside of the one side, but then on the other side, raising capital is, um, that um, sometimes we don't see how that discussion is um, going on on a deeper level because uh, as hard as it sounds, we're like still privileged mm -hmm. and we can be much more courageous and much more upfront. And I'm um, <laughs> like going to that discussion that somebody is thinking about 
can I call someone pretty? I think it's okay that, that you have to think about it. It's fine. Of course, there shouldn't be an, an atmosphere of afraidness about it. And also like thinking, oh God, now I cannot be alone with a, with a, in a room full of women. Um, but um, that's, that's totally awful. But on the other side, I think we as role models, we as like being on the privileged side also have to think for them who are not who are in a hierarchy mm-hmm. where you yeah. probably um, are just like a low-level entry position, um, working class. I'm coming from a working class <laughs> family, so that's kind of where I'm connecting with them. And then you have like probably not the experience no, and understanding to, to be assured about is being pretty now a compliment or I have to go to be nice in the background. So I think that's why that discussion is so useful and I'm totally with you. It's in some parts really awful. <laughs> But I'm always thinking like, okay, I'm pushing through the awful because I'm thinking about a broader context and thinking I'm the privileged one and I can stand up and yes. in the most awful way, like call the big brothers and get the sh- beating him up or so, I don't know. But I was thinking about pressing through that um, and going through and thinking about we're, we're still talking about gender as if we would be like, I don't know, 10%. We're 50% of the human race. <laughs> so. Mm. What happened here? Mm-hmm. So, and that's yeah, why I'm, I'm always like I'm with you, and also thinking I have to push through the awfulness and the awkwardness, and thinking about that less privileged mm-hmm. who doesn't have the voice. Thank you so much for sharing your view on that that issue, ladies. I think it was particularly interesting. So, Miriam, you mentioned um, earlier in the podcast that you have a team that's made up of fifty percent of women. I just was curious about. Um, how the diversity in um, each of your teams looks and if you have any particular policies or procedures in place um, to ensure diversity within your businesses. It wouldn't even matter if I had a policy because my business partner, Marvin Cole, actually prefers females in key leadership positions. I asked him about that and he said that for the African realities of where we are, and the hunger of women and the way they look at business, it really is a great anchor to the fact the environment is already very much skewed to, to males. We have men in the company as well. The person in charge of finance, is it happens to be a man. But at this point, we are almost a 50-50 complement of individuals in decision-making roles and of number. And it's not because we had a policy. It just happened. Diversity in terms of gender is important, but again, as Miriam and Barbara mentioned earlier, it's fundamentally needed to drive uh, a successful business, uh, the diversity in thinking contributed by the different genders. So I do take a lot of care and effort in getting people from both viewpoints and from both genders, um, and it's almost equal right now, and I'm sure that I will keep forcing that kind of in-house and making that happen as we grow bigger. Um, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, in, in your search for a woman, um, do you sacrifice the quality uh, or do you um, you know, have some kind of compromise in, in some way if you are hiring a woman? And I don't think that's true at all. The quality of a woman versus a man is absolutely no different. Um, in fact, they could be really talented and smart um, people on either gender. 
Um, but the key is looking farther and wider in order to identify that candidate, in order to identify the right person from that gender. And it's just a matter of looking. They are definitely out there. Now, we have no certain policy um, that there, we say that there need to be a 50% women's uh, quote. Actually, I think it came more natural. It really came natural. So, because, you know, I hire people from my peer group also. So my peer group, sorry, not peer group, my, my peer group. Uh, so I knew other women that came because of me and also my my uh, my uh, co-managing director, Jasper, our CEO. He hired people that he knows. So actually it came from a natural, it was growing naturally. And today I would say that we, we don't, uh, we would never hire a woman because she's a woman. When the man is better, we would hire the men. So we don't, we just make, don't make any difference. But the good thing is that we get a lot of applications also from women. Yes. And because uh, we have been, let's say in the last years, uh, Ratepay has become in, within the fintech industry, it has become more, more well known. And, uh, maybe it's also because of the fact that I'm a female founder and that we have a female CTO and things like that. It just attracts other women. I think we have more women applying for a job here than in other industries and other fintech companies in, in Berlin, for example. And it's not that we have a quota, and I, we don't want a quota. This is not something we want. This is, um, and until it is actually it came, it grew automatic. It grew automatically to to this. Let's say it's not fifty percent. It's about I think it's forty seven or so. But but still, I think this is a really healthy environment that we work at. And this is we want we want to keep it like this. If we would realize it wouldn't work anymore, we probably have to do something actively. But at the moment, we don't do something actively for this. I think it's a really interesting point that you make that you do receive so many applications from women for roles within your company. I'm curious, um, Barbara and Devi, is that something that you find as well? Um, yes. Um, that's just like if you stand out and um, as a woman, then you get that applications. Yeah, same in my case as well. I, I find that as a woman founder, uh, you do get noticed by women and uh, girls in universities, uh, etc. And also another thing, which is an important factor for my company, is that we encourage a very flexible working style. Um, so you can work from anywhere. We don't necessarily have offices where we operate. Um, we work in co-working spaces and we have extremely flexible working hours. And that really appeals to the women who apply to us. So a lot of women do take breaks um, for maternity or when the, uh, the kids are growing up or they need to have flexible working hours when um, they have something to go home to in terms of a family emergency. So because we offer that and research is something that can be done at any hour of the day pretty much, um, it, it's something that appeals to a lot of the women applicants that come to us. Um, but it's the nature of the business. I think that's encouraging that. And I wonder about other fintech startups. But for us, definitely, that's the case. I think part of the discussion that we had earlier in the week is that, you know, we really need to be encouraging recruiting managers and, and hiring teams to look outside of their immediate network um, for those, you know, highly competent and skilled women um, who are, of course, out there, but perhaps just haven't felt comfortable or, um, you know, haven't felt encouraged to apply with a particular fintech that perhaps doesn't have a female um, 
a female founder that they sort of gravitate towards. So on that point, um, what do you think fintechs or, or any tech business can do aside from from having a female founder and you know having those flexible working hours or working environment? What else can these fintechs be doing to encourage more women to apply? I would say one thing is um, hackathons are a great example. If you do it like like really encouraging female hackathons, like also raising girls, I love that. Um, that's great. And also if fintechs would join in a little bit more on that, um, like encouraging to be, there are initiatives with women in tech and stuff like that. Just like to be there, encourage them. And um, also what I'm always a little bit irritated is we have quite a lot of seniority, like proven female and fintech and finance expertise, mm. but you don't see them in any kind of board or advisory mm. board. So that if you don't have a female founder, <laughs> why don't get um, on your advisory board or on your board some female visibility? Mm. Okay, great. Thank you, Barbara. Now, I guess we've kind of touched on quite a few different things that individuals or groups can do to, to make a change in the industry. But as you all know, the theme of International Women's Day this year is Press for Progress. So if there was just one thing that uh, you would like to encourage people to do to, to make progress happen, what would it be? I would say um, go if you go for press for progress, do it on the highest level possible your company can go. And that's like um, uh, like going into board, advisory board, or look at your management positions and try really to figure out how I can go for progress, really for press for progress on the highest level. Then we can move from both directions. I would appeal to all the women out there to go and speak to young girls um, try and speak to as many as possible, be a mentor, be um, a role model for these girls growing up and show them that all you need to do is try try and try again and again to make what you want happen. And to the others, non-women out there, I would um, say look further and look wider to identify the right woman for that job because you will find that. And if you're a VC, fund more women startups. Um, you know, look out for women-run startups because they they would be different and they would have a different approach, but it may actually be much better for them in the long run. So that's what I would ask them to do. Yeah, press for progress. I would uh, suggest uh, young girls to think about finding a company because the times in order to, let's say, build up Companies or startups have never been better for girls and young women as they are today. I think they are really, really good. And um, do that and um, be brave and go for it. That is something I would really uh, give as an advice. Don't think so much about being perfect. I happen to be on the chairman of Girls Excel, which is an organization that knows that um, sanitary health and female reproductive health and education, especially being able to provide sanitary towels and tampons to girls, will keep them in school and within the sciences where boys excel. If you're missing five days every month, you can't learn the concepts because science is a continuation of one um, principle on top of another. So girls fall out at that point. Then you get to the university level and the way this education is structured, girls are automatically pushed into the arts and told your career is going to be nursing, perhaps, or teaching. But there are a lot more women that are breaking out 
from and using so many creative ways to do this. And I don't think that it's going to be the schools that fix this, but mothers who take a scientific approach for science, technology, engineering, and math, what we call STEM, to help their children to become mentally prepared to pursue these avenues. Great. And um, my next question is actually, what can men do to press for progress? And Debbie, you've already answered this in your question, but um, Barbara, is there something that you might, um, what, what would be your call to action to all the men out there who are looking to get involved? Um, really, I know so many great guys who are so um, encouraging and so kind and also like just support the women around you. They are there. I would really advise the men that they should not be afraid of talking about family planning with their, with their employees. I would tell all the men out there that Women's Day is a good time to start thinking about an initiative or a program which can be started to help women get back into the, their careers or help them with their career moves. So maybe this is a good time and good place to start thinking about that. And if everyone did that, it will be a great moment ahead. Well, Miriam, Debbie, Barbara and Viola, thank you all so much for joining us today and for everything you do to support women and men within the industry. Happy International Women's Day to you all and, and of course, to all of our listeners. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Spotlight on Fintech and to tune in to our next episode, which will look at the future of financial services and the emerging ecosystem model in, in the banking landscape. In the meantime, be sure to follow us on social media. You'll find all of our relevant links in the podcast description. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed um, this first episode of Spotlight on Fintech.